And I'm Rebecca, and we are Mama Bear Apologetics. Apologetics. We're just two gals talking about life's big questions from a biblical worldview. Because when it comes to the battle of ideas, we need to be able to say, mess with my kids and I will demolish your arguments. You mess, I demolish. Got it? Capiche? (laughs) (laughs) Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. I'm Rebecca. And so today we are going to be doing something that actually, Rebecca, we had tried to start on this a while back, but we had some uh, recording problems with our original. But this, we're trying to do something called the Article of the Week, and we're not necessarily going to be doing one every single week. But what Rebecca and I would like to do is find articles that really speak to us. And this is what I do sometimes uh, at night when John and I go to bed. If I found something that I really like, we'll lay in bed and I'll say, ooh, there's this really awesome uh, article that I just read. And I'll read it out loud while we're in bed and we'll kind of sit there and discuss it. And I always yeah. I always like that, just kind of picking it apart. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing. We're, we're just going to take an article that we like and we'll pick it apart as we go. And so the I think we decided the rules are whoever finds the article gets to read the article. So this one actually <laughs> is the article that you found. Yeah. Uh, but I'll do I'll do the intro to it first though. So the article itself is called "I Was an Atheist Till I Read Lord of the Rings," and let me see. And it's published on several different websites. I don't know which one was the original one. The one that I'm looking at right now is on www.wordonfire.org. Mm-hmm. That's a Catholic. Um, sort of apologetics website, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so before we read it, though, we thought it would be smart to maybe discuss a couple of the concepts for you to be kind of keeping your ears open for yeah. so that you can understand what's going on. So we're going to dive in first to understanding. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We keep having to go back a, a, a layer. So we want to talk about the argument from desire. But before we can talk about the argument from desire, we need to understand what a syllogism is syllogism is Mm -hmm. so we're going to talk about syllogisms we're going to talk about the argument from desire we're going to talk about the moral argument and then i think you said that you wanted to discuss uh, the argument from reason and so this will give listeners kind of a a background for while when they're listening to it these are some of the actual classic apologetics arguments Mm -hmm. that people have for the existence of god and this is Mm -hmm. kind of an explanation of how this worked its way through someone's reason and through their mind as they were reading Lord of the Rings. Uh, So first off, syllogisms. So an intro to syllogism, that's just a logical, syllogism is just like a logical vocabulary word. And it means where you have two premises and a conclusion. So it's basically you have two statements and the third statement is a necessary conclusion. So for an example, a syllogism could be premise one, all humans are made in God's image. Premise two, I am a human conclusion, therefore, I am made in God's image. Or you could say something like, all bachelors are unmarried men. Bob is a bachelor. Therefore, Bob is an unmarried man. So it's just these two statements that based... Yeah, poor Bob. (laughs) Yep. No. Happy Bob, poor Bob, whatever. (laughs) That depends on what Bob's like. Um, so, So it's just basically these two statements that you kind of accept these, and then based on these two, you get the conclusion. So the the argument from desire was best summed up by C.S. Lewis. And I can't remember which book he said this in, but he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Do you remember what book he said that in, Rebecca? <laughs> I, I am drawing a blank, which is very embarrassing. I, I know <laughs> he talked a lot about this in um, Surprised by Joy. And yeah. joy, joy is his concept of this desire or this mm. longing. And this is Surprised by Joy is sort of his... Um, his book on his conversion to Christianity. It's and sort of a double entendre, isn't it? Because it's like he was surprised by the joy of Christ, but at the same time, he was also surprised by joy because his wife's name was Joy. Well, actually, I think he might have even written this book before he met her. So it was a du- double entendre on God's part. Oh, that's so I cute. think he actually wrote this book before she he met her and oh. and knew he was going to marry her and, and everything. So, yeah. Oh. Actually, I think he didn't know he was going to marry her until like, he was marrying her. <laughs> he <laughs> was so... I don't know. I think Lewis had just so much pain in his heart from things that... Yeah, anyway. But, well, yeah, so the joy was this desire. And he, he talks about it very, you know, poignantly and, and surprised by joy. But yeah. that actual quote may come from one of his essays. I think maybe The Weight of Glory or something. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's another philosopher, Peter Kreeft. It's K-R-E-E-F-T. It looks like Kreeft, but it's Kreeft. According to John, he's let me know I asked him today. (laughs) And so he kind of helps with the the syllogism for the argument from desire, which is uh, premise one, every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire. And I emphasize the word innate because there's some desires in us that we have to learn to have but an innate desire is something where it's like you don't have to learn it so the the need the desire for food that's an innate desire you don't have to teach anyone to want food the desire for water the desire for love the desire for warmth all these things are innate desires Mm -hmm. so if it's something that boils up in you and you really don't have a reason for it that would be kind of an innate desire So premise two, there exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, no no creature can satisfy. So basically we have desires in us that we look around at the world and there's nothing here that could satisfy that. Mm. So the conclusion, therefore, there must exist something more than time, earth, and creatures which can satisfy this desire. So this is just a fancier way of phrasing uh, the way way Lewis phrased it. Uh, And that was from Mere Christianity, actually. So I, oh, just, was it? I just found it. Okay. <laughs> it was bothering me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so that's one theme that we're going to see in this article. The second major theme is the moral argument. The moral argument is just this idea that there are obje- things that are objectively morally right and objectively morally wrong, and everybody recognizes this. So stuff hmm. like, you know, my favorite example, just because to me it seems like the most cut and dry, torturing babies for fun. Yeah. Like, I can't mm-hmm. imagine any society being like yeah that's okay it's this innate knowledge there were some (laughs) we talked about our the canaanites but i don't think they tortured them i mean they they did child sacrifice but i don't know if they tortured them for fun and it wasn't for fun they had a purpose they thought they were appeasing the gods so it's not like it was just um they had they justified it in their minds yeah yeah and, and that alone saying that we have to justify the evil we do to make it good means uh-huh. that we have this moral sense of we of recognize goodness. that it's evil yeah so if we yeah. recognize that something's evil then we have to justify it. you don't need to i don't feel the need to justify drinking water because that's a good thing mm-hmm. and that's something i'm supposed to do i don't have to justify that now there's other things i might try to justify maybe like i don't know eating a twix <laughs> i don't know sorry that's that's my candy bar that i like but 
So maybe I shouldn't do that. We're totally getting off track here. So the moral argument, yeah, is just this idea that sometimes you can observe that everybody has this moral compass. And where did that come from? So that's that's a really, really truncated version of this argument. But it is one of the classic arguments for God, because a moral law has to come from a moral lawgiver. That's a whole other podcast, but I just want to say to be aware of that. And then the third theme that you saw in this article was you said the argument for reason. So won't you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the argument for reason is how can we trust that our thoughts have any sort of correspondence to the truth when they're just the random motions, they're ultimately just the random motions of of atoms in our brains. Yes. And that's a very sort of very rough way of talking about it. I have a couple quotes here. Chesterton has an orthodoxy. If you're merely a skeptic, you must sooner or later ask yourself the question, why should anything go right, even observation and deduction? Why should good, not good logic be as misleading as bad logic? They are both movements in the brain of a bewildered ape. <laughs> the young skeptic says, I have a right to think for myself. But the old skeptic, the complete skeptic says, I have no right to think for myself. I have no right to think at all. There is a thought that stops thought. That is the only thought that ought to be stopped. And really, the, the thought is um, sort of materialistic naturalism. And C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, Miracles, and then the, the probably one of the greatest living philosophers of our time, Alvin Plantinga, mm, yeah. um, took that argument and really developed it. And he called it the um, evolutionary argument against naturalism. Mm-hmm. And he says, naturalism cannot be rationally affirmed. If, natu- if naturalism is true, then our cognitive faculties are the product of an evolutionary process which is not aimed at the production of true beliefs, but is aimed at the beliefs that help you survive. Yes. So, um, and this argument was very sort of kind of precious to me when I was struggling with atheism because it kind of helped me see that there has to be some truth beyond the material world um, or my thought process, how, how would I know that my thought processes actually correspond to reality? Yeah, there was a, a meme that I saw a long time ago, and I cannot find this meme to the point of where I'm, I'm literally, um, I think I'm just going to create it again, but it, I think it said something mm-hmm. along the lines of my brain is trustworthy, according to my brain. <laughs> that's circular reasoning. It, yeah. yeah, it is circular uh-huh. reasoning, but that's essentially what it is, that if I'm saying naturalism says that the natural world is all there is, there's nothing in the supernatural, there's nothing outside of nature. If the natural world is all there is, then I have this random natural process that created a brain that now makes me think that I'm thinking true things about nature when, like like it said, it just could be survival. It's like if if, mm-hmm. if it was if there was a survival advantage to thinking... A instead of B, we can't call A true. It's just, you know. It has a survival advantage. Truth does not necessarily have a a survival advantage. But very few people will be willing to give up the idea that they can trust their reasoning and that they can trust logic. And because of that, that is also an argument for God. And so that's another one that we Mm -hmm. see in this article on I was an atheist until I read Lord of the Rings. So those are the three things to look for. We're looking for the argument from desire. We're looking for the moral argument. And we're looking for the argument for a reason. So Rebecca, without further ado, would you like to read the article that you found? Sure, absolutely. And we'll just kind of discuss it as we go along, just like I do with my husband. The author of this is 
Friedrich Heidemann. <laughs> Which was funny because as I, I got to the end, for some reason, I don't know if it's just because you sent it to me. I thought it was a woman that was writing it oh, until I got to the okay. end. Then I realized it was a guy, but that's okay. No, so it's, Friedrich. It's Friedrich Heidemann. I say it in my good German accent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I grew up in a loving, comfortable atheist household of professional scientists. My father was a lapsed Catholic and my mom was a lapsed Lutheran. That's an interesting combination. Yeah. <laughs> From the time that I could think rationally on the subject, I did not believe in God. God was an imaginary being for which there was no proof. At best, God was a fantasy for half-witted people to compensate their ignorance and make themselves believe, uh, make themselves feel better about their own mortality. Um, at worst, God was a perverse delusion responsible for most of the atrocities committed by the human race. What broke the ice? What made me consider God's existence a real possibility? The Lord of the Rings. And I might add that just those two previous sentences about God being a fantasy for half-witted people mm. to compensate their ignorance, or, or the other extreme, that he was a delusion that makes people hurt each other, mm. those are very common. Very common. Atheistic views. Yep, they yeah. are. So, guarantee. I was just going to say, guaranteed, if your children have either atheistic professors in college or they have atheistic friends or, or kids that were grew up in an atheistic household, this for sure will be something that they hear. So just put that out there. And at some point, you yourself have to kind of work through that yeah. and think, okay, am I believing this story because it's pretty good in the sense that I get to have eternal life? And am I just believing this because it makes me feel better about my mortality? Yeah. So anyway, so what broke the ice? What made me consider God's existence a real possibility? The Lord of the Rings. I was a young teenager when I first read um, the Tolkien tomes, and it immediately captivated me. The fantasy world of Middle Earth oozes life and profundity. The cultures of the various peoples are organic, rooted in tradition, while maintaining a fresh living energy. Mountains and forests have personalities, and the relationship between people and the earth is marked by stewardship and intimacy. Creation knowing creation. Tolkien described these things with beautiful prose that reads like it's half poetry and half medieval history. Everything seems deep in The Lord of the Rings. A combination of character archetypes and the assertive lifeness in the novel touches on an element of fundamental humanity. Every Lord of the Rings fan knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. And and for my a class last fall that I had with um, my professor, Dr. Michael Ward, we looked at literary apologetics and how we can use literature to um, communicate the truths of Christianity and the truths of, of God. And what Tolkien did was he just infused this world with natural theology. Mm. And one of the things he says, the cultures of, very, of the various peoples are organic and rooted in tradition while maintaining a fresh living energy. Well, what happens when you enter the Lord of the Rings? You feel like you're entering this whole world with this very rich history. Yeah. But it's not a history of just random, meaningless events. Kind of the way our modern world looks at history. Yeah. Our modern world looks at history as if it's just random, meaningless events. All unconnected and to that, each other. and All, con- all unconnected. <laughs> yeah. And and we're somehow getting better as we move on. You know, yeah. progressive, you know. But, um, but ultimately meaningless. You enter Lord of the Rings and you feel like there is this overarching there's a, movement of history. There's a bigger it. story. And it's the idea of if we want to introduce people to another 
another, uh, you know, $2 word, teleology, this idea that yes. it's progressing towards an end goal. And you get the feeling that, you know, it, it talks about in scripture how God knew the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And when mm-hmm. you watch Lord of the Rings, you really get that picture of it because you can see how this story has been weaved together so beautifully to where it's it's a it's a complete thing from beginning to end it makes sense from beginning to end and the beginning makes more sense when you know the end and that's why there's so much rewatchability and rereadability uh-huh. to it is because the more you know the end the more the beginning makes sense and i think that kind of touches on just a real theme from Old Testament, New Testament, again, the more we know the end. And I think even as we are living in human history and one day as we step into eternity with the Lord, that all our past history is going to make so much more sense when we know the end from the beginning. Yes, yes. And that's one of the things I love, you know, in our recent podcast on on Chesterton looking at the Old Testament, he's sort of looking at it through the the, the very wide lens of, of God working within history. And with the, of course, it's a, it's a premise that God is working in history. But then when you use that, you can see it. And it's the same thing. So like one of the famous lines is when Frodo looks at Gandalf and says, oh, I wish the ring had never come to me. Mm-hmm. I just wish we didn't, I didn't have to carry this burden. And he said, you know, Gandalf says, but there behind that, there's something else at work um, mm-hmm. that that intended for you to get a re- get the ring and not Sauron and not someone else. There's some providence at work in history that intended. So Frodo can feel rest rest assured that he was meant to get the ring. Yeah, I, I, the the phrase that came to mind in that was from Esther: "You were born for such a time as this." Or you, yeah, and that's kind of like the phrasing that Gandalf uses for uh, for Frodo. Yeah, so that's that. So you're entering this history that has this teleology that's moving towards something. Mm-hmm. Well, he says the the author of this article, Heidman, goes on to say, in my narrow confines of scientism, I had no way of processing what made Tolkien's masterpiece so profound. How could a made-up fantasy world reveal anything about the quote-unquote truth? But I. But I knew it did, and this changed my way of thinking. Are good and evil merely social constructions? Are they real on a deeper moral level? Moral argument. <laughs> Why? Yeah, there's the moral argument. Why am I relating to ridiculous things like talking trees, one of my favorites, the ints, and um, corrupted wraiths, ring wraiths? Why was I so captivated by the story that made fighting evil against all odds so profound? Why did it instill in me a longing for an adventure of the arduous good? And how does a story make sacrifice so appealing? The Lord of the Rings showed me a world where things seemed more real than the world I lived in. Not in a literal way, obviously, although I would might disagree <laughs> with that, but in a metaphorical, beyond-the-surface way. The beautiful struggle and self-sacrificial glory permeating the Lord of the Rings struck a chord in my soul and filled me with a longing that I could not easily dismiss. There's our, there's our argument from desire again. And I want you to bring up the uh, the quote that you read earlier from uh, the silver chair. So this is kind of talking yeah. about when you see a world that seems more real to you than the world that even that you're living in. So if anyone has read through C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, there's one of the books, The Silver Chair, and these characters go underground and they're in this this kind of evil witch's domain down there. And while they're 
underground. I mean, they're just like miles and miles underground. It's like at some point she starts trying to convince them that the world above ground is the imagination and hers is the real world. And dark. Yeah, the darkness is the real. And so the one of the supporting characters, Puddle Glum, who's kind of been this ho-hum Eeyore type guy the whole time, like stands up it's like ah i love this moment but do you do you have that quote in front of you of what he says yeah so this this comes from a really good bit called apologetics for the 21st century i think we've mentioned it before on this podcast by louis marcos mm-hmm. but um he's talking about the argument from desire here and how lewis incorporated it in his book um the silver chair and the silver chair when i first read through the chronicle narnia the narnian chronicles years ago was my favorite Me too. and puddle glum like immediately i just felt deeply affectionate for Puddle Glum. You, you want to just give the poor guy a hug. <laughs> you get the feeling that he <laughs> and, needs and, it. And Jill does mm-hmm. and he, at the end, and he was kind of shocked because <laughs> I don't think he thinks he deserves no. it, but he does. So in the silver chair, two children and a Narnian marshwiggle named Puddle Glum journey into the underground lair of the Emerald Witch and rescue Prince Rillian from a powerful enchantment. Unfortunately, before they can escape, the witch catches them and locks the doors. We expect that she will use violence to stop them. But instead, she throws magic dust into the fire and begins to strum on a mandolin. Slowly, seductively, she convinces them that the world of Narnia, that they know exists, does not really exist. Neither the sun nor Aslan really exist. They are just illusions, made up, mythic copies for real, mundane torches and cats. They almost give in. When Punnelglum, in an act of desperation, shoves his foot in the fire, the pain brings, brings him back to his senses, and he boldly proclaims that even if Narnia and Aslan are myths, he prefers them to the, to the witch's dark world. Contrary to the teachings of Freud, Marx, and the secular academic world, material things are not the source of our religious yearnings. Mm-hmm. They are not just movement of atoms in the mind of a bewildering, <laughs> as Chesterton would say. What we know in our hearts to be true really is true. Heaven is the true original. The things of our world are but pale mm. copies. And that, that brings us back to just the idea behind Colossians 2.8, where it says, See that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. That's exactly what the witch is doing in that scene where she's strumming. She's trying to take, she's trying, she's literally Mm -hmm. trying to take them captive and she's basically weaving this really soft, really reasonable sounding philosophy. And it really takes Puddle Glum Mm -hmm. stamping out that fire because that's the thing that's, you know, kind of has their eyes glazed over and it's that beauty of the the purpose for pain to remind us that this is not the world that we were created for yeah he was in pain and the pain is what kind of shocked him out of his um well and 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 in lewis's book the problem of pain he says pain is god's megaphone (laughs) (laughs) and it was kind of a megaphone for um for puddle poor poor puddle glum poor our brave puddle glum yeah (laughs) So, yeah, no, that's a very good, that's that argument for desire right there. Mm-hmm. So, um, where I were we? I think it starts with my attempts to explain. Okay. So, my attempts to explain these problems in my naturalistic, atheist, atheistic worldview fell flat. The idea that being, beauty, and morality were merely productive illusions imposed on us through biological hardwiring crafted through the random process of natural selection rang mm-hmm. hollow. If these so 
If things so fundamental to human existence as meaning and morality are nothing more than productive illusions, what else is untrustworthy? Our five senses? Logical processes? There we go. There's the argument mm-hmm. from reason. Our whole minds? If our being is nothing more than a collection of atoms reacting with each other in enormous complexity through cause and effect change stretching back to the beginning, then we are floating blindly through space and time. There's no rhyme, reason, or ah, purpose. love that. And that right there, and we can't even, you know, trust our own um, perception Mm -hmm. of it, right? And if that's the case, then so much of what we consider essentially human is a tragic joke. After all, the human race, the earth, and the universe will go extinct. With a long enough timeline, what's the point? We're going to, you know, our universe is going to suffer a heat death, right? Mm -hmm. As everything moves further and further apart from each other. Even the idea of accomplishing something is finally an illusion. At this juncture, the fruits of atheism were inevitable. Nihilism, despair, and most ironically, confusion. And this is where I think a lot of times people don't realize this is where the atheist mindset has to take you. You cannot get around the idea of if there is no purpose in our minds. If our, how do we say, if our conscious minds were not created by a conscious being, and they are just mm-hmm. atoms in collision. There is absolutely no reason to trust what we're thinking. That scientific process, mm-hmm. purposeless. Everything else, purposeless. It is just chemical reactions. And so I mm-hmm. love how seeing the beauty and the truth in The Lord of the Rings is a thing that it was almost like the stamping out of the fire where that, that mm-hmm. um, the fog of seemingly you know, reasonable sounding arguments, all of a sudden you realize that just doesn't make sense because the human heart that has been stamped with God's law. God's image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden mm-hmm. wakes up and says, that does not seem, that, that doesn't jive with what I feel like is innate. Again, that word comes up, innate. So, And these were the things, the same things that sort of rescued me when I was struggling through doubt and struggling with atheism myself. And so he goes on. So though seriously questioning atheism, I still had many objections. If God were real, why isn't there more evidence of his existence? Why does he seem hidden, in other words? If God were real, why are there so many religions? Wouldn't God want to clearly direct humanity to the source of truth? My doubts about atheism, however, continue to haunt me. If the supernatural does not exist, how can there be genuine moral obligations? The classic atheist response is that evolution has created a sophisticated herd instinct in the human race that causes us to be good to each other. We're social creatures. We want to get along. Those people who lack a moral compass were simply outcompeted by those of us with a sense of morality and those who could work together for our collective benefit. I okay. just have to point out that, that that to me is just such, <laughs> that's just so dumb because everything in our experience says that the people that basically are willing to step on everybody else to get ahead, they a lot of times are the ones who get ahead. So this idea that it's the ones that self-sacrifice yeah. and try to get everybody around them or the ones that survived. I'm sorry. The guy that's like, no, my family's going to survive. All of y'all are going to die is probably going to be the one mm-hmm. that survives. So this is just, that's an incredible mm-hmm. act of faith that I think to think that it was the philanthropists of society that actually rose to the top when that's not been our, that's that's been completely contrary to our experience in every other situation. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's very overly simplistic, and it's totally um, disregarding the data that the bullies win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
and he's he's about to use a word that I made I, I made a note on here. The word specious seem it means superficially plausible but actually wrong. So it's something that can sound like it's true, but when you think about it, it's not. So I just wanted to say that mm-hmm. before you went on with the the article. Deep down though, I knew this was specious or this was not plausible. Mm -hmm. Even if it could fully account for our moral sense, which I questioned, it did not explain genuine moral obligations. The argument, sorry, I just keep wanting to say again, the argument from uh, morality right there. So supposing the classic evolutionary theory of morality is true, it only explains why we perceive moral obligations, not whether or why there are moral obligations. Instead of explaining morality, it explains it away. The thoroughgoing immoralist could always object on the basis that he has been freed from the restrictive, outdated biological hardwiring of merely perceived moral obligations. He has raised himself above mm. it, and he can see it's all a yeah. hoax. I do want to point out that there actually is a um, an apologist, a well-known apologist, who has a testimony where he went through a period of atheism. And I, I didn't know this because I knew this guy as an apologist before I knew his story. Do you know who David Wood is? Yes, I do. Have you yeah. ever heard his? It's amazing story. Yes. And so yes. this is amazing. this is exactly what his story was. That I, uh, so David Wood was in prison for uh, a while. I don't know how long for attempting to kill his father. He thought he did kill him. The only reason why he did it, according to his testimony, is that he wanted to kind of finally prove that he had risen above this idea of moral obligations. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that this was his mm-hmm. way of proving it. Of course, he he is an amazing man of God now. But he can think back to this was his mindset at the time as, you know, outdated biological hardwiring of merely perceived moral obligations. So he just Mm. kind of followed through with that thinking. So anyway, sorry. It justified, you know, perhaps his Mm -hmm. anger and such at his father for other things. Yeah. So my atheist friends and family would inevitably respond with something like, well, the immoralist position has never been fully successful. While there is historical evidence that Generally, being a good person leads to a better ability to succeed, pass on good person genes, etc. I would object to that as well. (laughs) Yeah, this is only sort of true. This is like what you were saying. Much of history teaches that violence, greed, and domination pay off handsomely in the worldly sense. Mm So, but the responses miss the point. Just because being a thoroughgoing or moralist hasn't seemed to work to date doesn't mean it wouldn't later. After all, the hallmark of natural selection is random genetic change, granting certain creatures a better ability to survive in a given environment. In the end, all the atheists can say to the immoralist is, I disagree that your course of action will help the human race succeed. Mm -hmm. So right there, that's where we can put in, again, the torturing babies for fun. I disagree that you're that your practice of torturing babies for fun will help the human race succeed. I cannot say that that's wrong. I can just... You can't say it's evil. Yeah, I can't say mm-hmm. that it's evil. I can just say it won't help us flourish. That's. Mm-hmm. I can't even say that it's good because there really is no mm-hmm. good in Or if evil. we want to take it to something that we do see in our society, this would be being able to say, okay, so how about child sex trafficking? I can't say that that's good or bad. I can just say it's not going to help us flourish. Yeah, which is repugnant to us. Deep down inside, that's repugnant. And it's repugnant for a reason. It's the law that's been written on our hearts, um, you know, from Romans uh, 2, I think it's 2.14. So that kind of statement, which is merely an opinion, is simply not what we mean when we say an action is immoral. 
Furthermore, who pronounced from on high that the, that the success of the human race was the ultimate good? And that's another thing I've always pointed mm-hmm. out. We are assuming that success, survival, is good, right? My dad has mentioned <laughs> this multiple times to me. We've had these conversations. Yeah. yeah. So we can't get away from this idea of good, better, and good. So that itself is an assumption that cannot be empirically proven. Go back to the original problem. Does good even exist? I realize that within the purely naturalistic worldview, all morality is finally a matter of opinion. All the moralist can say to the immoralist is, my opinion is different from Mm -hmm. yours. No No more productive than arguing whether red is better than blue. I should clarify here that I never doubted the theory of human evolution. Nothing about it contradicts God's order of creation. I would disagree with that on the (laughs) terms of uh, original sin, but that's just a side issue for here. I'm also not going to say that atheists are immoral. They just can't account for the existence of genuine moral obligations. They are, like I was, living in great tension. At some point, the tension was just too much. Either morality is a farce, Everything is random with no meaning, and the human mind is mired in inescapable confusion, or atheism is false. I chose the latter. That was the logical side. On the emotional side, so many joys in this world have nothing to do with self-preservation or successful reproduction. Art, music, a beautiful sunset. I think deep down we all recognize that those kinds of aesthetic experiences may be the most joyful in this life, and these joys serve no productive purpose. The richness of life, which is on full poetic display in Tolkien's Middle Earth, may be recognized that supposedly rational atheism did not reveal the truth of things. Instead, it removed their intrinsic wonder and oh, worth. I love that. Having abandoned atheism, I still face several objections to organized religion that are beyond the scope of this post. Suffice it to say that my critique of atheism gave me a natural monotheistic theology, while the Lord of the Rings predisposed me to a sacramental spirituality. For now, however, let us remember the evangelistic power of beauty and narrative. Much like the Lord of the Rings, they are effective precisely because God is hidden and able to fly below the atheistic radar that balks at anything overtly religious. In Middle-earth, the effects of a God-created universe are everywhere, but the source, God himself, is hidden. No, it's not that we believers understand the Lord of the Rings on some special level that an atheist does not. Just the opposite. The atheist who truly understands the Lord of the Rings is more of a believer than he thinks. Uh, I love that. <laughs> I like that last I bit. do too. And some of this goes into, uh, we haven't posted it yet, but we have the the talk that I did on, I think it was Stealing Past Watchful Dragons, Christian Art in a Hostile World that I gave um, last year at the Athanatos Art, Muse- or Art and Apologetics yes. Festival. That this kind of touches on some of those things, the idea that you have to fly below the atheist. So the, the stealing past watchful dragons, that would be kind of like the atheist radar here of anything that's overtly Christian. I've got my eye on you and I'm not going to let that pass if it's overtly Christian. But if we have something that can kind of sneak past that, like it did with Lord of the Rings to this individual, I bet you anything that if you had tried to have some kind of apologetics conversation with this guy before, mm-mm, he would not have it. He needed something in art to show him the truth of what he already believed, but he just didn't realize that he believed it. Yeah. Um, I also, we can link to my paper that I wrote on this. Um, I, I did a, 
a series of blog posts on this this whole idea. G.K. Chesterton had another quote about this. He says that when it comes to speaking to our modern world about Christianity, we have to react against a heavy bias of fatigue Mm. in which it is almost impossible to make the facts vivid because the facts are so familiar. Mm. And for fallen man, it is often true that familiarity breeds contempt. Was that him who said that originally? yeah, I okay. believe it was. So sometimes we were too close to something to be able to objectively assess its merits or defects. Um, so Chesterton says it's well when the boy with the boy when he lives on his father's land, and it is well again, well for him when he is far enough away from it to look back on it and see it as in mm-hmm. a whole, to see it as a whole, to be able to appreciate it. Sometimes it takes going on a journey. Yeah to be able to appreciate our world. Um, But we in the modern world are in a horrible intermediate state. We have fallen into an intervening valley from which we cannot see clearly. So I wrote, we need to go on a journey far enough away so that our vision could be cleared. And I think this is what Tolkien provided. He provided this whole mythical world for us to travel into. And the same things that we marvel at and love, the self-sacrifice, the beauty, the the teleology, the, the providential ordering of history, all of those things are in our yeah. world. And we but we can love them better in that world because in our world we're too skeptical. Mm. We're too hyper skeptical of it. And like the same guy that he had the same reservations about religion. Well, look at all the evil it's done. Well, what about all the different religions? Well, why can't I just see God? And why did God do that? He had all these questions about God, which are legitimate questions mm-hmm. and they're answerable. Yeah. But sometimes we just stop at the questions. Mm-hmm. And going into the other world and experiencing beauty and experiencing another world where it's all the same stuff that's in our world, but it's safer, right? Then um, we can then be able to see those things more clearly back in our world. Tolkien called it the penalty of appropriation. And when we think we know something, we sort of like science in our scientific worldview, we think we can explain away mm-hmm. things and we think, oh, well, I have that all figured yeah. out. We really don't. We can explain how it operates and how it works, but we don't explain why. Yeah. Well, I think this, this really goes into just the value of literature and art and music. I think I just had a recent post on just the, the apologetic value of music. And so there's all these truths that if they try to go through our mind, we have a uh, Sometimes we have defenses in our mind that'll keep us from being able to hear that truth. And it has to sneak through our heart, through our, through our imagination, if it's going to be able mm-hmm. to really reach the innermost parts of us. And so I just, I just love that uh, it doesn't have to be some fancy philosophical argument to be an apologetic argument. It can be something as simple as a really well-crafted story. So, um, But that story is grounded in good theology. Yes, the story is you know? grounded in good yes. theology. And so that's... that's I think something that we'll be exploring in the future, I think you and I were talking before this podcast starts about a a certain movie that's coming up that maybe is grounded in some theology, but maybe not all the best theology. So we'll be kind of trying to dissect that and see what's the good we can take away from it versus what are some of the dangerous things that we need to stay away from. But I think that's all the time we have for tonight. So I'll just kind of say a prayer for, for our listeners and close this out. Okay. So, Lord, we thank you so much that you are the God of creativity and you're the God of imagination. We thank you, Lord, that because we know that you are a personal God, uh, that you have created our minds and we are not just relying on blind chemical processes just crashing together, Lord. We can say that um, 
our logical thought processes are because we serve a logical God. We serve a rational God. We serve a God who values beauty and aesthetics. Otherwise, what would be the point of just the beautiful flowers and the beautiful sunsets and beautiful nature, Lord? I thank you that you've shown us who you are through what you've created. And I thank you, Lord, that you can continue to show us who you are through what we as even fallen sinful men can create through stories um, and through art, Lord. And we just pray that you would continue to be with uh, the women out there as they're trying to teach their children discernment, as they're trying to teach their children what your world looks like through the lens uh, of art, Lord, and that they would just be able to gravitate towards the things that uh, really speak your truths, Lord, without having to go and just blast us in the face with <laughs> with Bible verses, Lord, but still maintain the ability to capture the truth that is already in our hearts, Lord. We thank you for writing it on our hearts, Lord, so that we can recognize it every single day. In your name I pray. Hmm. Amen. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. Have you been stumped by your kids already? Or maybe you have a nagging question of your own that you think would make a good podcast. Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we will do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.